When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R3, The Place of God. Even 2,300 years after Darius's death, the Behistun inscription was still a pretty impressive sight. Its well-preserved condition wasn't exactly by accident. Once the inscription was complete, around 518 BC, the great king ordered his work crew to demolish the path leading up to the high cliff face. With so many territories recently in revolt, Darius saw little point in making his new showpiece vandalism-friendly. Unfortunately for Lieutenant Henry Creswick Rawlinson, the removal of the path was not in the least bit helpful. He'd been waiting to copy the inscription for a good year now, but his regular duties had kept him fully occupied. What were those duties? Well, as an East India Company army officer stationed in Persia in the summer of 1836, his broad mandate was supporting the new Persian king, Muhammad Shah Qajar which meant Rawlinson had mainly spent the past year training Persian troops, recruiting additional regiments from local Kurdish tribes, and marching combined forces to regional hotspots. Still, to be given those responsibilities at the age of 26 pointed to Rawlinson's exceptional nature. He was born in England in 1810, the seventh of eleven children, to a fairly well-to-do landowning family. At 14, he began studies at Great Ealing School, considered the best private school in England, and earned especially high marks in Latin and Greek. During his time there, he also excelled at sports and spent much of his leisure time in outdoor activities. At six feet tall, with a strapping build and an adventurous nature, Rawlinson had set his sights on a career in the military. When he turned 16, a family friend nominated him for a cadetship in the East India Company. And just what was the East India Company? Oh, geez, you're really going to make me do this. Okay, I'll give it a shot. It started off in 1600 as a simple joint stock company, 
formed by wealthy merchants pursuing trade with several eastern territories, mainly India and China. The trade began with exotic spices, but soon grew to include commodities such as cotton, silk, dye, salt, saltpeter, and tea. Initially, their main rivals were the Portuguese and Dutch, but the British were able to forge an alliance with the Mughal Emperor of India, giving them a critical advantage. The Portuguese were soon eclipsed, but the Dutch East India Company, centered on Indonesia, remained an aggressive regional competitor until well into the 18th century. Around 1670, England granted the East India Company, which I'll just call the company from now on, the legal rights to control territory, command troops, make war and peace, and administer its holdings as it saw fit. In other words, do pretty much anything an independent state could do. In return, England got an ongoing share of the resulting profits. In the mid-18th century, the French entered the game, challenging British control of India at the same time they were doing so in America. But they were eventually driven out. Meanwhile, Britain was in the midst of an industrial revolution, increasing demand for its Indian commodities, and making the company the largest player in British global trade. Eventually, the company would also become the world's largest drug pusher, by using military force to drive Indian opium into Chinese markets. It wasn't long before the well-oiled machine began to break down. The company's territorial gains in India spread its resources thin, and a major famine in Bengal wiped out its labor force. As these factors began to hit the bottom line, the company came up with the clever idea of dumping its tea surplus on the American colonies. Which, well, let's just say the Boston Tea Party was probably not the result they were hoping for. The British government took advantage of the company's weakness to assert control over its territorial holdings, beginning the long process of extending direct British control over India. By the time of Rawlinson's cadetship, the company's role in India was mainly administrative rather than commercial, funded by land taxes on the territory it ruled. Most of the tax money went to support the company's 300,000-strong army, composed of Indian troops serving under British officers. The company used its army, alongside alliances made with local rulers, to exercise complete control over most of the country. In preparation for his military service, Rawlinson studied surveying, mathematics, drafting, and the languages of Persian and Urdu, then called Hindustani. He sailed for Bombay in July 1827, and arrived four months later. It was during his time in Bombay that Rawlinson first developed a passion for history, and found himself buying more and more books on the subject. His service in India took him from Bombay to Ahmedabad and then to Pune, where he remained stationed for three years. He both loved and excelled at the soldier's life, and soon swore a private oath to never engage in anything unless there is every chance of becoming first at it. I know what you're thinking. 
typical seventh of eleven children syndrome. In 1833, Rawlinson was sent to Persia as part of a newly created military detachment. At the time, the company's main interest in Persia was making sure the country couldn't be used by the Russians to threaten British India. The detachment sailed from Bombay to the Persian port of Boucher and eventually made its way to Shiraz unknowingly tracing the same route taken by Karsten Niebuhr 70 years earlier. A few decades after Niebuhr's visit, Shiraz had lost the title of Persian capital to Tehran, when the Zan dynasty had been overthrown by the current Qajar dynasty. Rawlinson had no sooner arrived at Shiraz than he, like Niebuhr, rode out to marvel at the nearby ruins of Persepolis. In March 1834, Rawlinson's detachment arrived at Tehran, where they were received by the elderly Qajar king, Fath Ali Shah. From there, they accompanied his son, the crown prince Mohammed Mirza, to the northern province of Tabriz, a precarious region that bordered on both the Russian and Ottoman empires. For the next several months, company soldiers trained Persian troops, until word arrived that Fath Ali Shah had died and Mohammed Mirza needed to return to the capital to be crowned king. The coronation was held in Tehran in early 1835 and instantly transformed Mohammed Mirza into King Mohammed Shah Qajar. Having caught the new king's eye while serving in Tabriz, Rawlinson was charged with raising and training Kurdish troops in Kerman Shah, the western province overseen by the king's brother, Baharam Mirza. Newly promoted to lieutenant, Rawlinson left for Kerman Shah in April 1835. It was at Kerman Shah that Rawlinson first heard about the amazing reliefs carved 20 miles away at the sacred mountain of Behistun, a corruption of the old Persian Bagastana, meaning the place of God. However, as I mentioned, his military duties prevented him from actually visiting the site for another full year. Baharam Mirza had entrusted Rawlinson with command of all local forces, both company and Persian. Despite military excursions to Kurdistan, Luristan, and Khuzestan, areas all known for their fiercely independent tribes, no actual engagements took place. In a mountain gorge near the Persian town of Zohab, Rawlinson had come across another ancient relief. As he described it, it represents a figure in a short tunic and round cap with a shield upon his left arm and a club resting on the ground in his right, who tramples with his left foot upon a prostrate enemy. A prisoner, with his hands bound behind him, equal in stature to the victor, stands in front of him, and in the background are four naked figures kneeling in a supplicant posture. Rawlinson guessed that this relief was probably contemporary with those from Persepolis and Behistun. As it turned out, he was off by around 1,500 years. The relief was later found to have been carved in 2000 BC by the Lelubi king Anubanini and showed him receiving his royal diadem from the warrior goddess Ishtar. The relief is notable for two reasons. 
First, it shows that there was a long history of Zagros hill tribes, from the Lalubi down through the Persians, carving royal inscriptions on mountain heights. And second, there are some interesting similarities between the reliefs at Zohab and Behistun, hinting that Darius's craftsmen may have been doing variations on an ancient theme. Finally returning to Karmanshah in June 1836, Rawlinson immediately rode out to see the Behistun inscription for himself. Even after a year's worth of anticipation, it did not disappoint. Its setting, the mountain or rock of Behistun, was a sheer precipice rising 1,700 feet over the surrounding plain. The reliefs and inscriptions, 25 feet tall and 70 feet wide, were carved at a height of 200 feet into a narrow cleft in the mountain. The reliefs depicted the Persian king Darius I triumphant over a group of rebel impostors, with the supreme Persian god Ahura Mazda looking on from above. The inscriptions were begun in 521 BC and recorded events through 519 BC. Just like at Persepolis, the inscriptions were in three languages, reflecting the Persian policy of making everyone feel like part of one big happy empire. They'd also been laid out in a particular sequence, and for this part, it's probably helpful to refer to a sketch of the inscription. I have a few posted at the Ancient World website, www.ancientworldpodcast.com. And, by the way, if you're not used to visiting the website, it's still where I post all the images, maps, and photos related to each episode, so I definitely recommend it. Anyway, the first four columns were inscribed in Elamite, the formal written script of Persia, and were positioned just to the right of the relief. Next, one long column with the same text was inscribed in Akkadian, the formal written script of Mesopotamia, just to the left of the relief. Then, four columns in the newly created Old Persian script were carved just below the relief. And so far, we're all fairly symmetrical and nice, but then things started to get a little more complicated. The Old Persian script contained a new paragraph about, well, the fact that the Old Persian script had just been invented. Since there was no room to add this same paragraph to the Elamite inscription, they just carved it kind of free-floating above the reliefs. Then, well, shoot, Darius just put down another rebellion, and guess what? He wants us to include another bound prisoner in the relief. Yeah, I know there's no room, I have eyes. Maybe if we chisel away some of the first column of the Elamite script? Well, now that just looks crappy. Wait, I've got it. How about we smooth away the entire Elamite inscription and redo the whole thing down lower, just to the left of the old Persian script? Okay, now Darius wants us to add another new paragraph at the end of the old Persian script covering his most recent victories? Yeah, sure, great. Okay, are we good now? No more change orders? So, symmetry kind of blown, but what are you going to do? Tell Darius to stop conquering? 
Anyway, to Rawlinson, the whole thing still looked pretty amazing, warts and all. His main issue was access. There was still a narrow, incomplete ledge sitting just below the inscriptions. In 1840, a member of a later French expedition would describe the climb to the ledge as absolutely impossible without specially constructed scaffolding, and the ledge itself as far too narrow to safely record the inscriptions anyway. I'm not sure what would have depressed him more. The fact that the athletic Rawlinson had already made the climb four years earlier, without a rope, ladder, or any other assistance, and managed to record the old Persian inscription in great detail, or the fact that Rawlinson would later describe the climb as no great feat, which was probably just the old English-French rivalry talking, but still. Time after time, often several times daily, Rawlinson spent most of the summer of 1836 climbing up to the narrow ledge and painstakingly copying the old Persian script the first person to see it up close in over 2,300 years. Then, returning to Kermanshah, he'd pore over the ancient characters, seeking the clues to their decipherment. Unaware of Grotefen's discoveries discussed last episode, Rawlinson ended up using a similar approach, starting with the royal names and working outward. By early 1837, he'd completed copying over 200 lines of the old Persian inscription. During the rest of the year, he returned to the site as often as possible, and worked on the translation whenever he was away. His ambition to be first in every endeavor, and, as he put it, his instinctive longing to attract the attention of the world, was now fully channeled into deciphering old Persian cuneiform. Now, a rather large elephant enters the room at around this time. In October 1837, Rawlinson stumbled across a secret Russian embassy crossing Persia on the way to Afghanistan. From the Persian king, Rawlinson learned that the Russians were heading to the Afghan city of Kabul to seek an alliance with its current ruler, Dost Mohammed. Aware of the threat a Russian-Afghan alliance might pose to British India, Rawlinson immediately set out to inform his superiors in Tehran, completing an epic 750-mile horse ride in around six days. As it happened, Rawlinson's report and the events it set in motion would eventually lead to the breakout of the First Anglo-Afghan War, all of which is a fairly huge deal and probably a good topic for its own miniseries. But for the moment, I'm going to avoid going into too much detail on the war itself, and only touch on aspects that impact Rawlinson's cuneiform efforts. Toward the end of 1837, the newly promoted Major Rawlinson was given command of the Tehran Arsenal. Fortunately, the new position gave him enough free time to continue work on his decipherment. On January the 1st, 1838, Rawlinson sent his translation of the first two paragraphs of the old Persian script to the Royal Asiatic Society in London, offering to send more if they found his work of interest. The reply quickly arrived that the society was very interested, 
in both his work and in obtaining copies of any inscriptions he might have, since at the time Rawlinson probably had access to more than any other researcher. Word of Rawlinson's efforts spread quickly throughout the European academic community, and by April 1838 he'd been elected an honorary member of both the Royal Asiatic Society and its French counterpart. In June, he received a copy of the Partial Old Persian Alphabet, deciphered two years earlier by the French linguist Eugène Bernouf. Since there were a few mismatches between their findings, Rawlinson started a correspondence to hash out their differences. Before he seriously tackled a full translation of the Behistun inscription, he wanted to make sure that the Old Persian Alphabet was firmly nailed down. It's interesting to note that, at the time, Rawlinson's research was mainly valued as a way to confirm the works of Herodotus, related to Persian history. No one had yet given much thought to the other cuneiform scripts, and no one had any idea of the ancient civilizations that would be revealed when they were finally deciphered. By October 1838, the company's position in Persia had seriously deteriorated, and a British war with the Afghan kingdoms of Kabul and Kandahar appeared imminent. Despite the tense political situation, Rawlinson, again posted in Tabriz, was granted permission to set out on his own and explore northwest Persia. He was excited at the prospect, but also well aware of the potential dangers. The region he was about to enter had recently earned a grim reputation as a graveyard for curious Westerners. Emblematic of this was the Kalishan Pass. The pass was located 50 miles southwest of Lake Urmia, near the border with Ottoman Turkey. Ten years earlier, a French expedition, led by a German professor named Frederick Edward Schultz, had come across an ancient stele erected in the pass, and covered with strange inscriptions. Schultz had dutifully recorded the text, then gone on to study other ancient sites around Lake Van, before eventually being killed by Kurdish bandits. A second party sent to copy the inscription was slaughtered to a man a few years later. The danger, in short, was clear. But to Rawlinson, the lure of the site was even stronger. Rawlinson was privileged with one piece of local intelligence. There was an optimal window each year for accessing the pass, just after local Kurdish tribes had left for the winter, and just before the serious winter weather set in. Rawlinson had timed his excursion to coincide with this window, but arrived nearly two weeks late. After being delayed by fierce storms for two more days, Rawlinson finally attempted the ascent. He was accompanied by two horsemen, supplied by a local Kurdish chieftain loyal to the Persian king. Four hours later, he'd reached the infamous pillar. Dark blue in color, six feet tall, and bearing 41 lines of cuneiform script. Which, naturally, he wanted to copy. Which, unfortunately, just wasn't going to happen. First off, it was 20 degrees below freezing and the stele was entirely covered in a thick sheet of ice. 
Even when Rawlinson chipped away some of the ice, he found the inscriptions to be damaged and incomplete. Unknown to Rawlinson, it would take another 50 years before an accurate cast of the stele would be made. When it finally was, in 1893, by the British Assyriologist Archibald Sace, the cuneiform inscription was revealed to be bilingual, written in both Akkadian and Urartian. The pillar had been carved by the early Urartian king Ishpuini, around 800 BC, to record his annexation of the city of Musasir from the Manaeans. That's way back in episode 15 for you longtime listeners. With the winds quickly rising, Rawlinson took his companion's advice and began his descent from the pass. He left the site with mixed emotions, disappointed with his meager accomplishment, but exhilarated at having seen an object that few Europeans had ever witnessed. Returning to Tehran in November 1838, Rawlinson found himself transferred to a new company posting in Ottoman Baghdad. It was the end of a five-year stint in Persia, a country that had profoundly influenced the course of his life. He'd be gratified to learn that he'd also made an enduring impression on the country. A later story in the Times of London boasted that Rawlinson had left such a name among every class of society that a letter from him would have been a passport throughout the whole of Persia. His influence even extended to the wild chiefs of Kurdistan, who respected him as the best shot and the boldest rider they had ever seen. In early 1839, Rawlinson finally began drafting a paper for publication in the journal of the Royal Asiatic Society. The paper was entitled Memoir on the Persian Cuneiform Inscription at Behistun. In addition to his partial translation of the Old Persian text, the paper was also to contain detailed drawings of the reliefs, commentary on various ancient sites, and some additional notes on Persian history and geography. In the midst of finalizing his draft, he received a letter from the Norwegian scholar Christian Lassen which carried the unwelcome news that Lassen had just published his own decipherment of the entire Old Persian cuneiform alphabet. Rawlinson noted that Lassen's results were consistent with his own, and, beaten to the punch, saw little point in going ahead with his own publication, at least until he had something new and important to contribute. In mid-1839, still in Baghdad, Rawlinson wrote a letter to the Royal Asiatic Society, discussing his intention to begin a closer study of the other two cuneiform scripts from Behistun. Unfortunately, it would be the last letter he'd send them for the next six years. A massive company army had recently invaded Afghanistan from northern India, with the goal of installing the exiled Afghan ruler, Shah Shuja, on the throne. Hampered by logistical difficulties, meager provisions, disease outbreaks, and a comically oversized baggage train, the army had nonetheless been successful in capturing both Kandahar and Kabul for the Shah. The situation, however, remained dicey with rural Afghan tribes constantly on the verge of open revolt. 
Experienced company officers, particularly those skilled at dealing with native tribes, were in high demand. And so it was that Major Henry Creswick Rawlinson found himself ordered to Kandahar to serve as the company's chief political agent in the city. His attempts at decipherment would have to be put on hold. The First Anglo-Afghan War would soon demand all of his attention. In Rawlinson's absence from the field, the baton would be picked up by a very different sort of character. The Parisian son of an Italian historian, Paul-Emile Botta had spent his formative years as a naturalist and makeshift surgeon on a voyage around the world. The journey had taken him from Europe, across the Atlantic, to Rio de Janeiro, then around the tip of South America and north to the shores of Mexican California, before crossing the Pacific to China with a visit to Hawaii along the way. A few years later, in 1831, Bota had traveled to Egypt, and in 1836, he'd been dispatched to Yemen, Nibor's Arabia Felix, to collect plants for the Paris Natural History Museum. But it was an 1842 posting, as French consul in Mosul, that would launch Bota's most famous journey, into the great cities of the distant past. Khorsabad, Nimrud, and the Assyrians. Next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.